0: Welcome to LikeVille. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in LikeVille, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash likevillepodcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash the second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montreal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also, sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEVIL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevilpodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode.
1: Welcome to the Like Phil Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I'm going to be talking with artist Shelley Miller. Hello, Shelley. Hello. Hi. So, um, you've worked in so many different mediums. You've done so much interesting stuff. I don't really know. So, why don't you tell our listeners who you are and what you do?
2: Well, I generally say that I um, I specialize working in public spaces, doing permanent commissions, street art, and community engagement. Because in some ways, my work is a little bit um, fragmented into those different avenues. And they're quite different um, in terms of the work I do and just how they function. Um, But I also see them as being kind of interrelated and all sort of symptomatic of my interest in working in public spaces, primarily. Okay.
1: So what is the difference? Because this is something that, that comes up all the time. What is the difference between public art and I don't know, private art? Like, what is it, just as a basic division in the art world?
2: So the public art that I do primarily is part of this program called, uh, like, the Policy for Public Art, the 1%, quote-unquote, some people call it. Not all of them. Sometimes they're private commissions, but they're in a public space, so they're outdoors. Um, typically, those projects of mine are in uh, schools or hospitals, and... Um, And the Percent for Art program is basically whenever there's a new federally or government-funded building, uh, new building or a significant renovation, about 1% of the construction budget goes towards a public art piece or pieces. So if that budget is really, really huge... You know, in the case of like a really large hospital or something, there may be five, ten artworks that all kind of fall into that policy. So uh, Quebec's program is very well established and quite broad-reaching. It's throughout the whole province. Other cities have these programs. So in Canada, cities like Toronto has their own program. The city of Montreal has their own program. Uh, Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, you know, lots of cities have these in the U.S., it's very widespread throughout cities and counties. Um, so once you get kind of experience doing it, and if you like doing it, you know, you can continue to get more projects. Yeah. And I really I really like doing them.
1: Okay. And this is all, like, you apply to granting agencies? You That's, like, who pays for it?
2: So, again, in most of the program in Canada, this policy, um, it's essentially coming from the budget for the building so if it's federally funded then part of it is coming from taxpayer dollars so if it's a public school or a library or a hospital it falls under the construction budget but it's essentially the entire budget which is by government money in some capacity Um, now how it works in Quebec is artists first have to apply just to be considered in their roster. They kind of keep uh, like a pool of artists pre-selected. Uh, you can apply to be in 2D, uh, 2D relief, uh, and 3D. There's different categories. And so if you work in different mediums and different ways, you can apply to be in more than one category. So I'm in 2D and 3D. Because you I can do
1: like sculpture, you can do painting, you can work in lots of different mediums. I yeah, mean, you've it, made stuff with sugar.
2: That's my <laughs> ephemeral street art. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. So the things that I do for the permanent commissions are only permanent materials. Um, and so once a project comes up, once there's a building uh, that's, you know, under that falls under this, this policy, they form a committee based on the, uh, the architect. There's uh, one or two representatives from the Minister of Culture. They have artists on the committee, usually the, the building owner um, and what they call users of the space. So people who are actually going to be working in this space. There's about seven people and they look through all those dossiers and then they'll shortlist about three to five artists. So I'm in that pool of artists. So how I'm selected is I just get an email saying, you have been pre-selected for this project. Here are all the details. Here's the site. Here's the budget. Do you accept yes or no? If I say yes, I want to kind of bid on this project. Then me and the other two to four artists have to come up with um, an entire artwork concept for the space, We have to do fabrication samples. We need to have a budget. Um, So it's a lot of work. We have to do a maquette showing the artwork actually integrated in that architectural site. And then we do a presentation, uh, and then one person
1: gets it. So you can put months of work into that and just, like, not get it.
2: Yep. And then you just lick your wounds and, you know, move on to the next thing.
1: It's so—I mean, do they— do you have sort of confidence? I mean, I don't know if you can say this on the air, but like, do you feel like they actually make good decisions most of the time or, or, or half the time? I mean, the reason I ask is that I know in in a number of other fields, like let's say music, for instance, right? Like I have uh, my sister's a musician right here in Montreal, and <clears throat> she's been in a lot of different bands, and they sing. Some of the bands that she's been in sing in In French and some of them sing sing in English. Most of them have been singing in English. And the ones that sing in English, they can't get any funding. They can't get any, like, provincial funding because they tend to want to support, like, French language. And even bands, uh, I'm blanking on the name right now, it's like a hip-hop band from Laval, Uh, they, who are, like, Known all over the world, they're amazing. They can't get any provincial funding because they sing in Portuguese, Spanish, French, English. I, I think probably at least half their lyrics are French, but because they they have tainted their their lyrics with like other languages, Bonjour, Hi, that they they can't get money. And so what ends up happening is you have like the Francofolie, like which you have like a musical music festival. Which is heavily, heavily funded, but I don't know if you went down there. Nobody goes, because it's shit. It's like basically government-funded art. It's like it's it's chosen not because it's like quality, quality stuff. It's because it suits a political agenda, agenda right? right? In the same way that in Soviet Union you'd have like you know the sort of the socialist realism, and you'd have like, this fits with our political agenda. Um, Yeah,
2: I would say this process is a bit more open, and I think fairly democratic. Um, You know, because the committee is made up of such a diverse group of people, you know, and most of the people on the committee are not artists or from an arts background. So when I'm presenting my concept to this committee, I'm aware that it's a diverse group. And so, You know, you want to, as an artist, try to still do work that feels like your work and that you're proud of and want to put out in the world. But that you can also kind of reach and talk to different people and kind of help them all understand your concept in the work. Um, But just to be eligible for this program in Quebec, you have to be um, like a practicing artist in Quebec. So you have to have had shows or things in the province. Now, the the Ville de Montréal, their public art process is a little different. Most of theirs, they put out the call. And this is how it works in most other cities. They just put a call out to say, here is the project. Um, submit your qualifications. It's a request for qualifications. So at that point, you don't submit a specific design. You just send in your CV, 10 images of your past artwork, and like a one-page statement explaining your... Your concept, your approach. How would you approach this if selected? Um, It's just kind of like applying for a job. And then from that, they will select the three to five artists. And then you get a fee and then you develop your full concept in the maquette. So those other, you know, the city programs are probably a little more open because you don't necessarily have to have experience. Um, But if you don't, you know, you are still competing with all these other people who have experience.
1: So what, what is different in terms of if you're um, trying to, I just recently finished reading uh, Sarah Thornton's book, like Seven Days in the Art World, which is so freaky. And she just sort of goes everything from like what it's like to be an art school <laughs> and that that environment and then what art auctions. And then she talks about public art and then museums and collectors and just looks at the art world as yeah. being these Largely autonomous subcultures mm-hmm. that you know, have a connection to each other, but often sort of misunderstand each other and contempt for each other. And they all like kind of are doing their thing. I mean, I'm wondering like how I kept writing again, like, the margins when I was re- it's like, how does your art fit into these different subcultures, like the the art school kind of like, we're above everything and it's super conceptual and like we don't talk to the hoi polloi. I mean, and then you're doing public installations, so you're trying to speak to a broader public.
2: I would say that I, you know, I did the kind of conventional art school, did a bachelor's, then I went and did my master's.
1: The MFA thing. Like,
2: yeah, yeah. And it was only f- when I started doing these sugar installations outdoors that I started to really kind of go, huh working out in public spaces this is kind of cool you know and i was never really comfortable with exposing my my process cuz i mean i would make these sugar sugar installations on walls like live kind of um you know i'd bring uh dried sugar flowers and i'd you know create these sort of architectural trompe loy on the side of of buildings And, you know, people would stop and ask questions and I would sometimes bring a friend with me to sort of like field questions so that I could just focus on working. Part of it was because I had a limited amount of time and I had to get the work done. And part of it was because I just didn't feel comfortable talking to all these people. But, you know, over time you kind of go, oh, yeah, well, people are really interested and it's kind of cool to see their reactions. And then even like, you know, years later, I would meet people or, you know, be introduced to people and somehow they would find out that I was the one who did these sugar installations. And they'd go, oh, you're that sugar lady. Like, I saw your thing on Duluth I've been searching for
1: sugar woman for so long.
2: <laughs> and, you know, I started to realize that I just, I could reach so many more people than you can with art in a gallery. And it's not that I, like, eschew doing work in galleries. I still will. But for me, that's not as interesting, at least not as a solitary practice of just showing work inside museums and galleries i really like working in public spaces i like to see the work kind of living in a space and interacting with the building you know what is the building what's the history of the building what's across from that building what's the traffic who's seeing it like the whole environment yeah. um, that to me is really exciting and interesting and how you can kind of pull in all these threads of stories and history into your work and that you just you get from sight
1: yeah, And do you get any, I mean, I I know I've, I've written uh, a number of things on the, the whole kind of conflict that happened in Montreal between kind of graffiti, like taggers and street artists. <clears throat> and so you had like people who were making murals and then you had people who were tagging. And for a long time, they were kind of all on the same team because they were all getting tickets from the police for you know doing their, but then at a certain point, street art became a big thing and suddenly Mural street Festival. <laughs> yeah like well you know suddenly even even before that you had people like Chris Dyer who was having rent parties cuz he was like he was broke all the time and was always like trying to pay off all of his tickets and couldn't pay suddenly he's selling pieces for like 10 grand each and you know all these other people like Sticky Peaches and all these other street artists from Montreal are suddenly making money and there's yeah. galleries that are like buying their stuff and then you saw this kind of civil war that started happening between kind of street artists and Tigers, where the Tigers said, you guys, are butch is so loud and blah, 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 and all stuff. And they, and they really – I just find it absolutely fascinating in terms of showing cleavages within the art world because the Tigers, paradoxically, were actually maintaining the conservative modern art position that – that art is an elitist thing. You communicate in a very specialized code and only the cool kids get it. Right. right? Most people look at and only the cool and nothing kids nothing can infiltrate. Yeah. And like you're not supposed to and they thought that, you know, people who do big public murals, they're making something beautiful that's easily accessible. So you're you're like a pop Popular music, I used to like them before they got popular, mm-hmm. like you're doing something popular and because it's it's easily accessible it's by definition shit right and so it's i just i've always wondered where where your stuff kind of fits in that because I find you do i mean we'll we'll put links to some of your stuff it's very visually stunning it's like you know often your stuff is very big it's very beautiful it's very um, but it's not. It's not um how should I put it? It's not easy. Like the messages you're usually talking about are are not fun in the in the way that just like oh a, in some a pretty world. woman face kind of it's yeah, not yeah. quite the same thing. You're talking about histories of slavery and you know, some pretty intense shit. <laughs> so so yeah. how do you how do you sort of navigate that? And do you get any kind of trouble from either side?
2: Um, I mean I, I don't come from a graffiti background or like a mural background, I'm not, I don't call myself either of those things. Um, I respect both of those traditions. It's just not what I am. I don't, I'm not, you know, I I, I think it's amazing how people can put up these giant murals and have everything like be proportional. It's like, how do you do that? You know, it's like we all have our own (laughs) skill sets and it's like, we don't know how other people do other cool things. Um, I'd say that I'm sort of adjacent to a lot of those things. You know, I just kind of, I didn't really even think about if I fit or where I fit or if I wanted to fit. I just did what I wanted to do. You know, I just sort of put up these little sugar things and and saw what they did and I liked it and I did more. Yeah. <laughs> it grew and and that's that. And I've never really had any trouble um except once uh was that a year ago? 2 years ago? I had one sugar mural up that like 4 or 5 days after Someone completely covered it. Someone tagged over it with paint. Really? I won't say their name because they don't deserve any airtime. But it was just, it was a dick move. And yeah. everyone knew it was a dick move. And this person just does that, you know. And so it was like, well, that's their M.O. So. I
1: remember, it, it is so completely telling. I remember there's this one kind of notorious tagger in my neighborhood, which is, I guess your neighborhood, Plata uh, Morial, but you're more in my and more southern part of it. Yeah. But, Uh, And this notorious tiger who would make a point of just whenever really beautiful murals were out, he would, like, go out and, like, deface them and stuff like that. And I, I actually met this guy. It was so weird. I met him through a mutual friend who was in town from Toronto and went to this party. And this guy, turns out he, like, lives, like, just a few blocks away from my house of course, you know, he is always talking about how, like, yeah, those, like, you know, muralists are such sellouts and, like, I'm hardcore anarchist and stuff. Like, he's actually, like, a trust fund baby from, like, Toronto who basically in his early 30s never had a really serious job in his life. is like, super rich, big Ugh. cokehead, like, kind of guy. And, like, yeah, but he's, like, really hardcore. You know, like, and yeah. I, I said to him, "I'm like, you know, that these muralists that you're crapping on, like, they are actually struggling artists. A lot of them, and they're they're trying to do something nice. Like, why are you? It's it's weird. It's a kind of uh,
2: I found. I mean, most times I found that there's kind of a code, you know, a code of respect.
1: There used to be, yeah, yeah. The Civil and I mean, War, yeah.
2: when I put up something, I'm always pretty careful." that if I cover up something, it's not like a real piece and it's not something that's new, you know, and if I'm not sure, I ask around. So that there's there's a code, there's some respect. You know, the very first mural I put up uh, in Sugar, there was a lot of graffiti on the bottom of the wall and I kind of specifically decorated over it, but it's icing, so it was going to wash away, you know, and it was kind of fun and playful. It was like I was interacting with the graffiti And, you know, I sort of heard through the grapevine that most of the taggers thought it was pretty cool. And then the building owner actually said that while the sugar mural was up, there were no new tags. Once it washed away, new tags went up again.
1: Oh, wow. That's really interesting. So I thought that was cool. Yeah, because that used to be the case. Yeah. That used to be the case. And I know actually there were a lot of like property owners in uh, my neighborhood where they would actually commission a mural. Because that would just kind of make you safe, like you weren't going to get tagged. But that changed when the when like the mural festival started, and when suddenly these like sort of street artists, muralists, were making money and doing well. Suddenly, that truce was off. Everyone's up for fame. And suddenly, the taggers kind of uh, declared war on the the muralists, and so now there's uh, you know I've. A number of my friends are sit on the board of the Mural Festival, and they said, like, they employ, like, some artists all year round to repair all the murals that are tagged on a regular basis. Wow. And they, it happens, like, you know, it's, a, it's an ongoing job. They have to go and, like, repair I'm sure. all yeah. the murals, which is just, it's so weird. Because to me, when I look at tagging, it just looks like... The human equivalent of a dog marking its territory and peeing on a fire hydrant. It's like, here's my name. I'm amazing. That's exactly
2: (laughs) the roots of it, right? It's like staking your territory. But at a certain point, it's just like, you just look like an idiot. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So why do you, why do you, Work in, I've wanted to ask you this ever since, you know, it's a while now, but, like, why did you decide to work in sugar? I mean, it seems sort of like almost like a like Tibetan Buddhists with their sand uh, drawings where it's, and then they blow it yeah, away. Yeah,
2: the ephemeral. I I mean, I've worked with it for about 20 years, and I've used it for different reasons. In the very, very beginning, uh, I used it more as kind of its domestic reference, you know, sort of frilly, lowbrow, kitschy, cake decorating, you know, Activity that was more associated to women in the home, domesticity. And then I wanted to use it uh, in public spaces on walls, referencing more like historical grandiose architecture. Kind of this like high-low taking, again, something from domestic spaces into the public realm. Sort of blowing it up, you know, and, and using it in kind of interesting ways. And then I started to use it more as a a commentary on consumer culture and excess and waste and greed. As I kind of got older and I traveled more and kind of saw my culture from outside, from distances, I was just more critical also about consumer culture in the West. And so I sort of keep finding different ways to use the sugar. And then uh, in 2004, I went to Brazil for the first time to do residency and couldn't help but want to explore the history of sugar in Brazil, which is so inextricably linked to slavery and colonization. The entire founding of the country was essentially based on sugar. And then, you know, that for me just sort of um, propelled the whole blue azulejo tile-style murals that I've been doing ever since then. And so, you know, I've I've used that blue azulejo style uh, in Brazil, but also in other countries, because I think that it doesn't just speak about the Portuguese colonization in Brazil, but, I mean, the French, the Spanish, the Dutch, the British, all those primary colonizing countries who were also um, responsible for the global sugar trade and slavery all have their own kind of traditions of blue ceramic tile work. So, for me, it just sort of represents more like colonial aristocratic society.
1: Yeah. So what do you think is the... If if any, I mean, what do you think is the connection between like crafts, like, you know, knitting or making cakes and stuff like that, like crafts and like real art, right? Whatever that is. Like, so what are those things kind of, are there bright lines between them or?
2: Uh, Well, there has been traditionally. And, you know, I feel like every 10 years or so, there's this new movement of like, the craft rejuvenation or craft as art and people trying to raise the level of crafts. And it, it does its cycle and then, you know, a new wave of people do it in new ways. And I mean, I feel like crafts are, I mean, they have been generally accepted as a fine art, as a high art many times in many places but it seems to still I didn't kind of I didn't do that. its, like, ups and downs and, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's still no real conclusion. It's still a debate. It's still going I,
1: on. I, I think it's like in the, if you look at Charles Darwin's drawings of finches and animals and stuff like that, he, I remember the first time I, I saw them when I was, I guess, like a, like a teenager and I thought, oh my God, he was such an amazing artist right and i mentioned this to my grandmother and my grandmother just started laughing and she's like no she goes uh, it's just you know in the 19th century if you were just an educated person it was assumed that you would know how to draw what you were looking at that was a skill that everybody had it was realistic just realistic like, drawing just knowing how to draw what you're looking at and being learning that skill was uh, knowing how to draw just representational drawing and knowing, um, and knowing how to play at least one musical instrument right. was part of like just being a normal, civilized, <laughs> educated person. Right. It wasn't like I'm a musician yeah, or yeah. I'm an artist. She said, "Everybody." And so I looked into it after. And she's my grandmother's totally. Well, right. and that's
2: like how you know women, especially more like in you know British society, were taught to do needlepoint. And sewing and craft work, that was just, again, like something that you just, it's a box. You need to learn how to do this to be like a proper lady.
1: Yeah. And also in many subcultures, like New England subculture, for instance, men too, right? They had these incredibly long winters where you had uh, pretty much, you know, you didn't have much to do. Like another, I remember I went with with Annalisa a number of years back. We stopped off. Like, I don't know why we stopped off. It was like somewhere in Ver- random place in, Ver- in Vermont. And like, there's a small town. They said, "Oh, come here! This is the, you know, the childhood home of Calvin Coolidge, the you know, two-time president of the United States during the 1920s and stuff like that." So we went, and one of the things that I was just blown is again, it was like Charles Darwin's finches moment, where they had these quilts that Calvin Coolidge had done when he was a kid. Wow! They were so exquisitely beautiful. <laughs> They were really, really beautiful. And it just, you know, you see, like, Darwin's finches, his drawings, and you see, like, this guy who is, like, super capitalist dude who, like, you know, ended up, like, becoming, like, president and was a very kind of, like, conservative dude and he does these beautiful quilts. And you just realize, like, our ideas of, like, what is an artist and what is a normal person, what is masculine, feminine, what is, like, Mm. has really changed a lot. And it seems like... Things have narrowed quite a great deal in, you know, in the last sort of hundred years, perhaps. Because this apparently was just a normal thing that kids all learned. They learned how to quilt.
2: Well, I mean, even today in many cultures, men are the primary, you know, seam, seam, not a seamstress. What do you call a male seamstress? Uh, I guess like a tailor? A tailor?
1: A tailor or a... But sewing was very much a,
2: a male practice, more so than... I, probably today and especially in our culture.
1: Well, I guess it, it depended on, you know, the, the high, sort of like chefs, right? Like right. we have the, it's very kind of gendered who cooks in the home, but yet the top chefs tend to all be like dudes, right? The people like, so there is... Yeah, does, and then
2: it comes down to economics and who gets paid more.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so how does all of this sort of come in terms of art? Like what is if you're doing representational art or if you're trying to like play around with those lines between uh, what is kind of kitschy crafts and working with sugar or working with things like that and what is fine arts, like are, are, you, are you consciously messing with that or just...
2: Sometimes, yeah. I mean, I think generally uh, the material is just a tool. You know, I don't think all quilts are art. I don't think all knitting projects are art. <laughs> but they can be, you know. Um yeah. so for me it's like whether it's cloth and you know, icing or paint or pencils or garbage. It's like what what do you do with it that decides if it's going to actually be art or craft or whatever. And, and it's always subjective and I'm not the there's no one expert in the world, you know. Yeah. There's some consensus, but um it changes. I mean, I think for me the domestic references um, have always been kind of a common thread, no pun intended, in my work. <laughs> uh, you know, my mom was always a very crafty lady. So I grew up in a house of my mom sewing a lot, um, but also just that idea of making do, making do with what you have. So that that influence from my mom, I think, has probably been quite pivotal in my work and in my working process, you know, and one of the reasons why I also wanted to use sugar in the beginning was because it was just this everyday, cheap kind of material. And I wanted
1: commodity to show, use it yeah. to
2: reference other things, other types of decoration. And the idea of sugar coating something as well, I've always liked that idea.
1: Yeah, that is, I mean, <laughs> that is a very freaky, freaky idea. But the, you know, I think about, let's say if you go back to, like, the Italian Renaissance or something like that. If you were an artist or you were a writer or something like that, whatever, you wanted to make pretty pretty shit, you had to go and you'd have, like, a patron and you would go and have to ingratiate themselves. And usually the best game in town was whoever happened to be in charge and uh, or the church. And so, surprise, surprise, a lot of the art is religiously inspired because... You know, you basically sing for your supper, right? So, like, you, you do what they want you to do. So, it's a lot of portraits and things of rich people and their kids and, you know, stuff like that. And then public things and then a lot of religious things. So, where does the money come from now and how does that affect uh, what is represented or what kind of things are. Because I think it's people who say that this is somehow new. I don't buy that for a second. There's People have always had to make their money somehow. So if you're in ancient Greece or Rome or ancient China or wherever, you always, if you're an artist, you have to be, unless you're independently wealthy, I guess. um, But even then... You have to have a
2: patron. You have
1: to have something. So where does the money come from now and how does that affect what themes are are covered
2: well i would say it depends a lot on what country you're from Uh, i mean in canada we have a really great granting system but then the granting agencies become your patron and they have certain agendas that you either conform to or you don't or if you don't fit the model of what they're looking for or not um Many other countries don't have granting systems like we have, so then they are very much reliant on on private foundations um, and donors and museums and other s- such things. Um, I I don't have collectors um, because my works are either ephemeral <laughs> <laughs> or they're part of you know the public art process.
1: So. But the institutions that decide who gets the grants and stuff like that—like, do, do you have a sense of what their, what if any, their agenda is? Because I, you know, there's—I'm uh, blanking on the name of it right now—but there's uh, this really interesting book I had to read when I was in university, which was talking about how the CIA, through various things, was funding modern art in the 1950s. Through, they were like funding modern art uh, galleries. They were, uh, they so much of the money in modern art, like Jackson Pollock, like like a huge percentage of his revenue for years was coming indirectly. He didn't know this, of course, through the CIA, and it's because they they wanted. They thought that modern art really sort of uh, was good for their Cold War argument that we are a free society where art doesn't have to be in any explicit way pushing a political agenda that people can just express themselves it can be totally kind of abstract and can all this stuff that this was good for their arguments right know? and so they would fund that and right and that's happened like things like that have happened uh, many many times before and since and john Rawls and saul uh, in his book i think it's um Reflections of a Siamese Twin, he talks about the real push uh, in Canada in the mid-20th century to try and create Canadian art and, and Canadian content and the CBC and C- getting all these contracts about creating Canadian content and how, since that's kind of a squishy concept, right? Mm-hmm. It, it means that you end up supporting a certain kinds of art. I'm just wondering if you have a sense with these big institutional patrons, like, is there any rhyme or reason to what they support and what they don't support?
2: I don't really follow it closely enough, unfortunately for me. <laughs> <laughs> I I tend to just think only about what I want to do, and then I'm like, uh, where do I get the money to do this? <laughs>
1: and you Damn. just roll the dice and just see, like, And what? then I'm
2: just like, I'm just going to write this grant and... Yeah, see what happens, see just what roll happens, the dice. And, yeah, I don't know. I, I should think more about...
1: No, not necessarily. (laughs) It might it might be like horrible if you do. I mean, if do you find that writing the the grants takes a huge amount of time? Because I I know, like for academics right now, I spend so
2: much of my time. It's months just doing like administration, research, grant writing, just not making art. (laughs) That's what I spend. Too much time doing.
1: Like, would you say, I mean, just if you had to throw out a figure, like what, because I know like a lot of academics tell me now that they spend, uh, they spend easily like one third of their time is either writing grant proposals or writing regular reports to sort of progress reports to say, well, this is what I've done so far and this is what, you know, I have done. And like they, in the UK, it's apparently even worse. People throw out. They say it's now like like half your time at least is spent babysitting, trying to get, and then babysitting right. grants. And they're like, "This is insane!" Like I don't we don't get have- a
2: lot of grants. I don't apply for that many anymore. Um, I would say my time is just really fractured between a lot of different projects because everything's contracts. So you get a contract, yay, great! I can pay my rent for a few months. But you immediately have to get back on the hustle because you got to keep getting different contracts and more contracts, not just this year, but for next year too. And so you have to constantly be planting seeds. You know, you got to be applying for shows. And then if you're applying for a show, well, if you get the show, then you need to make the work. So you need to get a grant to get the money to make the work that you said you were going to do. And then you got to also be applying for, you know, the public art stuff and then the the presentations. And then I, I have other just projects that I just want to do just for fun that I got to try to squeeze in and... It's, and it's just like constantly, constantly like you can't rest on any laurels because you got to just keep keep it going.
1: That's completely. That's. I mean my my younger son, my sixteen year old, Indy. He wants to be an artist, and it's very it's it's interesting him looking out at the world, and we have introduced him to like friends of ours that are that actually have made a life in art, and whenever the question is asked, like. What should I do if I want to be an artist? Like, the, the answers are are often so cynical. <laughs> they're, they're sort of like...
2: Well, I think you have to be a masochist. <laughs> For real.
1: Why do you have to want to be a masochist?
2: Well, it's just constant rejection. Yeah. I mean, I think if you look at my... and you look at what I've done, I I think I look fairly
1: successful. You look extremely successful. But I mean,
2: that's only, you know, for every acceptance, there's like, I don't even know how many rejections. So you have to get really good at just picking yourself up again and continuing. rolling
1: the dice again. Just
2: keep going, you know, because it's so cyclical, at least it has been for me. You know, you have some really great years and you have like really good success, But again, it's not like, it doesn't just keep on coming. Like eventually things slow down and then you got to just like keep on hustling.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, one of uh, my friend Bevan, who has made a career as as an artist, I I asked him, (laughs) I asked him like, well, you know, Indy wants to be an artist. What would you tell him? And he said, "Uh, Mm -hmm. I'd tell him to marry rich. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If he can't be rich, be rich is the best thing. Uh, but if if that's not possible, then marry Rich. Uh, Mary Rich um, if that's not possible, uh, I would tell him like what they did not teach me in art school and in my MFA or anything like that, which really I realize now uh, should be taught at the earliest levels, is uh, to survive as an artist in this day and age, you have to be an entrepreneur, you have to be a marketer, you have to be a hustler, Definitely. you have to know... How to, how to write a business plan, how to like, you have to know like the skill sets involved in, in having a small business and you have to, uh, the worst thing you can possibly be is what unfortunately our art school culture very much encourages people to be, which is a kind of passive Snow White you know, sort of looking into the puddle, and someday my prince will, like waiting to be discovered. Yeah. Like, yeah. All right. You have to be out there, like hustling, hustling all the time. Yeah. And I always you know? say, like,
2: there's no such thing as luck. I like think Oprah said, you know, luck is when opportunity meets preparation.
1: I've never heard that. That makes perfect sense. You know, some people.
2: You know, they'll hear that I got a certain commission or something, and they'll be like, "Oh, how did you get that?"
1: Well, you do make it look very effortless. I mean, you don't I'd seem bust like you're hustling ever all
2: the time. I mean, you see, you make I'm the not hustle like look doing like it. <laughs> well, because I'm I'm not like a schmoozy hustler.
1: No, you're like, really. Not. I don't go yeah. to a
2: lot of openings and events. and I'm not like doing selfies of like me meeting important <laughs> people. You know, I'm not that person.
1: Yeah, but I don't have a Kanye vibe. So. <laughs> 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 I'm
2: fucking amazing. Yeah.
1: yeah, you don't have that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah.
2: But I mean, I, I feel like I'm always working. I'm always working on multiple things and hustling and trying to build. I would say the other th- the other advice if I could give is you have to make your opportunities. You have to build something. You can't just look at what's out there and then try to, like, fit in some holes. There's some holes. Maybe you can fit in a few, but you, you got to drill your own holes. you got to yeah. make your own opportunities.
1: Well, like, like, uh, like my friend Bevan, you also, one thing that the two of you have in common is that you both work in tons of different mediums. Like, you, you do all sorts of different things, right? Which seems to also be an important thing. Like, don't just learn how to do, I don't know, painting or, like, this sculpture. Learn how to do, like you know, work with lots of it's different things. It's funny, materials. though, because I
2: often, like, so many times throughout my, my career, I've thought, ah, oh, I wish I could just focus and just do one of these things. Like, it'd be so much easier to just, you know, just, like, narrow in my energy and time and focus to just do one of these things, but I can't. Like, that's just not me. There's different creative things and needs that I get from all of those different things. Yeah. So I also kind of need to oscillate and go back and forth between those different projects.
1: Yeah, I I find a very similar thing as like a teacher that I I redesign my courses almost every year and I change the material, I change the the books, I change uh, everything, right? And it's because I get... If I were to just specialize on one thing for like five years, I could maybe get incredibly, incredibly good at that one thing, but I get bored. Mm -hmm. And so then it's not... It's not as fresh, it's not as exciting to me, and that comes through. Because very often what you communicate through, I find, through art or through uh, through anything, or through writing, through teaching, is an enthusiasm for the subject and the material. And there's some kind of excitement yeah, that well, comes through.
2: That makes me think about my own creative process and how, for me, the exciting part is when I'm trying to kind of learn something or figure something out if i figured it out then i don't want to keep doing that same thing over and over again like it's about the the questions i have the things that i'm trying to figure out and sort through as well whether that be like a conceptual thing or a technical challenge that's what's interesting for me you
1: think of an example of like a like a, a conceptual challenge and a technical challenge as one, yeah, like one that you had, sort of that that is memorable to you, because I, you know, I, I I find these kinds of things fascinating. Like
2: well, that. I mean, I guess uh, the first time I did the kind of blue and white Azulejo style sugar mural, because uh, I had been to Brazil, and I've always been also really inspired and influenced by the decorative arts and patterns and ornamentation, and so I was seeing all these you know patterned ceramic tiles on homes and buildings from the portuguese influence. So I kind of wanted to reference this somehow and I I did a couple of little sugar, you know, piped sugar installations on some old buildings. And I liked that contrast of the the really ornate, frilly sugar juxtaposed with this dilapidated, crumbling old building. And so I started to think about the idea of sugar coating. Literally, like, what are we sugarcoating? What are we trying to sugarcoat? What's behind the surface and the structure that's crumbling? Which, to me, just, I think about, like, societies and all these big things, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then um, I did uh, a small installation of, of uh, like, colored tiles, but they were they were piped. So I created, like, using piped sugar in my studio... I made these sort of tiles that were super fragile and then I carried them to the site and then I put them on the wall. And they kind of worked as a trompe l'oeil from a distance. But up close, you could see that they were really like bumpy and you could see all the relief. And so I really wanted to then try and make something out of sugar that really looked like a ceramic tile. So then I started playing around with different techniques and recipes. And I was also seeing all these large murals with ship imagery. And so I was thinking a lot about this kind of heroic imagery as they're usually presented in those murals about exploration and conquest. And I was like, well, should we always be proud or should people always be proud of that conquest? Because what did it really mean? And what does it mean to different people? And again, in the context of Sugar's history, I wanted to try try and create a mural that looked like one of these, these ornate and, you know, grandiose ship murals, but in Sugar that I knew would crumble and fade (laughs) And so, you know, working on different recipes and techniques and experimenting in the rain, putting up little test ones. It looks like a baker or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, it's like a scientist, actually.
1: Yeah. I'm
2: more like a scientist. Yeah. (laughs) And then finally, I, because, you know, there's this element of the unknown. I don't know exactly how they're going to wash away. But I've done enough experiments that I can kind of make a hypothesis of how it'll fade or crumble or fall off or, you know, whatever based on what I've done, the ingredients I've used, things like that. So then when I went back to Brazil to do that first one, it was just so gratifying that it really worked the way that I wanted it to and had the it turned out better than I even expected. Cuz again, like I didn't quite know what would happen. I just had to stay and keep going back every day and documenting
1: it. What it was what was it like being I mean Brazil is just you were in 2004, so you would have been Wow, that's that's after they kind of went into free fall. So well that was what the was first time. Like, <clears throat> then was it I went, like I was back there. in two thousand eight and two
2: thousand nine. And then I was there the last time I was there was uh four years ago. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean we
1: had we had somebody on the podcast just a couple of months ago, a friend of mine, Asa guy who's living in Rio right now and he, he moved down there, learned Portuguese, married a Brazilian girl and like is started a business and his, you know, having all these crazy adventures and he, you know, just us like talking to him like over, over the phone and online, he was just talking about how crazy it was getting down there. And so, and the people being like the, the murder rate and the violent crime, unbelievable. Like just like a war zone all the time. Like he said, you know, you, it's easy from the outside to look at, you know, the, the sort of Brazil's Trump and his rise and stuff like that, and think what a freak and why would Brazilians? But he goes, "What you don't realize is the intense amount of like violence and just total breakdown yeah. of of people feeling safe. Everybody getting kidnapped, getting carjacked. I mean, all the time, I like I was mugged
2: and attacked once and almost twice. Really, somebody very close to me was shot and killed by the police in Brazil. So, I what? mean, I've had, I've okay, experienced okay. Whoa, you gotta, a lot, you gotta, of, a lot like, of the negativity happened? of Brazil.
1: What, I mean, how did that happen?
2: How did, how did what happen?
1: Well, first of all, the, the mugging and the...
2: So, I was just outside the condo of a friend's, uh, me and his girlfriend. I was putting up a little sugar piece, actually. I was doing a little test. And she had my camera. She was taking some pictures of me. And she saw like a kid come up the street because he lives in salvador and just down the kind of street from where he lives along the edge of the water is like a kind of like a small favela so obviously somebody saw us from between a building saw a camera and sent the signal go get that camera so this kid comes and my friend said to me like let's get back in because everything's gated so we were About to start to go back into the gate, but we didn't get there in time. He ran up and he was grabbing the camera. It was my camera around her neck. And so he was pulling on it. And she was screaming, He has a knife. He has a knife. I didn't hear her. My fight or flight kicked in and I fought. (laughs) So I was trying to grab the camera out of his hands and he was, you know, swinging with something. Um, eventually the strap broke, the camera fell and then he grabbed it and ran and he dropped what he had, which was, it was kind of like an ice pick. It wasn't actually a knife. So that was completely freaky and, you know, just totally freaked me out. And I changed a lot of things about my behavior after that. You know, I wasn't, I didn't ever carry a camera on the street again, you know, I don't really carry a purse or a bag or a watch. I just have a little money in a side pocket and that's it. And and then uh a few weeks after that, and the same trip, I was I was gonna go to Rio for a week and uh I was waiting for a bus. I was gonna take the bus out to the airport. And I was waiting, waiting. It was next to this little like um kind of magazine stand. And the man working there saw me standing by myself and he called me over and he said, Like are you alone? And I said, yeah, I'm waiting for this bus. And he's like, okay, stay closer to me. Like it's not a very safe area. I was like, okay. So I'm waiting. And then, um, I see this kid again who just looked a little shady. I'm, you know, I'm the kind of person who doesn't judge, but there you start to realize you have to judge. You have to judge on appearances because it's about your safety. Mm -hmm. So then all of a sudden he pulls out this like machete and he, This woman standing right next to me, he tries to grab her bag and slice the handle. So she's fighting with him. She can't let go. And then he cuts her hand a bit. I don't know. And then he runs off. And I'm thinking, Jesus Christ. Like, if I was over there by myself, yeah, he probably would have come to me. So then I hopped in a cab. And
1: yeah, I mean, just it's it's completely, it's completely crazy. It's just a different reality. uh, Oscar, I mean, Asuka is like, You know, he's, he's you know, about, like, he's tall, well-built. He's, like, an African-American guy, like, super, super dark. And he said, he goes, doesn't matter, like, race. It doesn't matter anything. He does not, in Rio, he does not, like, go out with his wedding ring on. Oh, yeah. He doesn't go on with a a watch. He, like, he said you have to be... So completely. No,
2: I took notes from my local friends.
1: Like he said, you have to be so completely careful. Yeah. And <clears> he, <throat> yeah, as a business owner down there, he's, he was running a restaurant for for years uh, called Sweet New York, and then he he he's had a number of businesses down there. Um, he said you basically have to pay private, like security forces, to to kind of keep you. And I said, what do you mean? Like mafia, like protection money? He goes, no, 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 it's not like protection money. It's like literally protection. Like you need, like you need, um... and he said, you know, you don't realize that like at a very, cause you know, coming from a place like Canada, you just presume that you have rule of law and you have kind of like basic. And so you, you, kind of take it for granted yeah and then some people if you're you know not that smart maybe you get excited about things like anarchism and stuff like that because you don't realize how horrible it is when there's like no rule of law and he um i mean he he ended the the likeville interview like when i talked to him i was kind of shocked i said to him afterwards i called him after i'm like were you serious about that? he's like yeah he said uh i've applied for um to immigrate to Canada with my wife and my kid uh, kids,
2: just he not goes, enough.
1: He goes, I've I've absolutely. It's gotten so 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 bad. Yeah, and uh, and he said, you know, do I think, do I think the Brazilian government's a joke, and do I think you know he's a complete idiot and a blowhard? Absolutely, but he's not the real problem. Like the real problem is like Brazilian culture, and only if you're if you're living here. It's, it's just, it's deep. It's so, so violent and it's so kind of, it's horrible. But it's also
2: a place of such joy and beauty and like, I have like this deep love of Brazil as well. And I mean, so many people do because there's also this other side that's just sort of covered by this other filth,
1: you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, there is, but what his point was, and because he he basically, which I I poked fun at him so much about this in the interview, but like, like he's an old friend of Annalisa's. They go like way back and they go back since their kind of late teens, early 20s. Like they went to university at Rutgers together and stuff like that. And then they were, they lived together, a bunch of roommates situation in New York. When they were younger and stuff like that, and so they they go way back, they have a lot of history, but he was always always like really kind of talking about racism in the united states and and we used to hang out a lot in Baltimore when we were living there, and he would just constantly we talked to like you know talking and drinking and like smoking like, till like five in the morning about racism, and he was really kind of talked about that a lot, and so he moved down to Brazil. Because he wanted to get away from American racism.
2: Oh, well, it's just a whole different brand of racism down there. (laughs)
1: That's what he discovered. You know, I read this
2: amazing book. um, I can't think of the name right now. I will send it to you Mm. to give to him. It was written in the 70s.
1: He's probably read it. He's read everything. But it's
2: a comparison of the racism between Brazil and the U.S. and based on their different histories of slavery. And it kind of explains a little bit about, like, why the racism is different based on the different um, histories that they have. And I just—it's so amazing. It was so interesting. Huh. And then the most interesting part is that I read it, you know, a couple of years ago. It was written in the 70s. So it's sort of dated, but at the same time, they're talking about things hundreds of years ago, so it's not really that dated but then you realize how little has changed since the author wrote this book. And you're like, ah, what?
1: hmm Well, he was—so he went down there. He discovered exactly what you're talking about, that the, the racism is so, so intense down there. But he also said—he said it's very different. It's and different, so he said yeah. it's—what you realize is that in Brazil, what is way more important— is class. Mm-hmm. Class is like really, really paramount. You can surpass race
2: if you if surpass you have a certain class. Level. Like for instance, him. Yeah. Like if you
1: met this guy, he's like super good looking. He's uh, he's incredibly smart. Like like in, Like, you know, kind of person who as an adult decides to move to a brand new country and learns the language so much that he can <laughs> completely function in it. That's kind of crazy, right? Like, he speaks multiple languages. He reads everything. He's smart. and c- He's a computer programmer. He's in math entrepreneur. He's amazing. But, and he took up cooking and became like a chef in Rio. He's insane. But he's a highly capable person. But because he's very well educated, mm. coming from the States, right. high class status, that completely Also
2: a foreigner. Trumped,
1: that, that trumped. Like race completely, like he said, any like wealthy white family. I mean, he he actually married a Brazilian, who's who's like African Brazilian. She's black, but he said I could have married like any like any white chick from from a high class, and they would have been like no problem whatsoever because he's high status. Right. Whereas he said uh, there are places in the in the United States and there are other places where even if he was highly educated and rich and right. like high status, the fact that he was black would still be kind of a, a barrier in places. So he, he said there it is different. But what what he said is that a lot of the joie de vivre and stuff like that 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 made Brazil awesome is is I can't remember the the stat that he gave me, but it was really crazy. I mean, I, I went and checked the, up on it afterwards, because I thought, it can't be that bad. But it really was. It was something like um, I'll check this after. It was something like two-thirds on a numerous like opinion polls that they've done in Brazil. Two-thirds of Brazilians right now say that if they could leave Brazil, they would.
2: Mm.
1: Right? So a place that's filled with lots of joy and beauty, two-thirds of people don't say they want to leave. Like something is really, really deeply wrong and recently wrong. Like we're not talking about, you know, legacies of slavery and the sugar trade and stuff like that because this was not the case in 1950. This was not the case in 1970. This was not the case in 1920 or 1990. There's something that has gone very, very wrong there, which is recent. And do you get a read? I mean, you've been there a number of times. Do you get a read on what that is?
2: Well, I mean, I think for a long time the economy seemed to be like there was there was potential, right? They were on the global stage as like the next, right? And I think in recent years that's plummeted because of government corruption and scandal issues. I mean, the whole like Olympics t- I mean, that was just like a disaster Shit show, yeah. So, I think it's also how, why like morale has just plummeted. Huh. And globally, too. I mean, they're not seen the same way they used to be. I think tourism is, like, radically down. Is it really? Nobody wants to go there. I mean, flights are cheaper than they've ever been.
1: Is it because of the, the danger and the crime, or is it just—
2: I'm assuming. I mean, I don't really know.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I ever told you this story, but uh, Annalisa was down there for the World Social Forum, and she, along with a bunch of other people, was actually taken, like, hostage. No. Yes.
2: No, I did not know this. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's a pretty crazy story. Jesus. Um, I'll give you the short version. She can give you the long version at some point. But they basically, and the, the crazy thing is, is that it was for the world social forum. She's so supposed to be down there for this like super lefty, like another world is possible, right. like thing and everything. And they had they had organized housing and like people working with with the conference, and so she was down there with a number of other, like, activists and scholars and, like, kind of... And they were staying at this place and they were basically... Um, they took away all of their cell phones and locked them in the house and said, give us, like, way more money or we're not going to let you out of here. Bizarre. they had, you know, guns and everything, like, the whole bit, like, yeah. So
2: how did they infiltrate? It sounds like it was a pretty secure setup.
1: Uh, no, apparently there was a lot of... At the World Social Forum, there were a lot of um uh kind of extortion. There was a lot of there's like sexual assault that happened. There was all there's a lot of really shady stuff that happened at the uh at the World Social Forum. And, and it, didn't
2: the current government promise to be tougher on crime?
1: Uh, well <laughs> I guess Selectively. I, I don't I don't know. I mean like it, it seems like very often the problem is that the government is actually the police are are in, in on it very often well, they, they are they, they operate are. like like gangs, right they' so, sarcastic. yeah <laughs> so <laughs> the, so so what is your I mean your friend who is like what is that story? your friend who was
2: It's a long story, as most good ones are, I guess. Um, I mean, the short of it is he did have a history of drug addiction and crime. He'd been in and out of jail, so he wasn't, you know completely clean. But he knew the police were trying to kill him. He was out of jail. He knew the police were trying to kill him.
1: Why were they trying to kill him? Uh,
2: I mean, who knows? There's a lot of the story I won't ever know, probably. But his mom and I were trying to get him off the island. He's from a small place on an island. And, you know, one morning, Sunday morning, he wasn't armed. He was just on the beach, like, having breakfast. And the police car showed up and he ran because he knew they were trying to kill him. And two hours later, he was in a morgue with three bullets in the front of his body. He was basically killed execution style. He didn't have a weapon. There was no reason for him, for them to kill
1: him. But how did you meet him?
2: The first time I went to Brazil.
1: Okay. Because usually that's like you know how you meet people that are in like the criminal subculture. There's not a lot of bleak well, I mean he wasn't. Like, he
2: didn't have a problem at the time I met him felt later
1: oh yeah i mean but that's you know there's when i spoke to oscar when he was on the on the podcast it was not long after there was that i'm blanking on her name right now she's a very prominent brazilian politician Marielle franco yes yeah so maybe you can tell our listeners what who she was and what happened to her
2: she was a i guess a city councilor. i think Mm -hmm. in rio um, Marie, I forget the, the actual district she was in, but it was a favela, a poor neighborhood. She's black and... Um,
1: openly gay. Openly gay. Married yeah. to a woman.
2: And very much um, was supportive of the rights of people in favelas and LGBTQ people, uh, black people, very much against all the police brutality in the favelas. And she was assassinated. By police. It's pretty, yeah, it's pretty obvious that it was police and people very, very closely associated to the crime. It
1: was in broad daylight. They killed her, like, and along with her political aides. Like, they didn't even... Yeah, the
2: car was just uh, assaulted with with bullets.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, and it was just after that that had happened, and I, I thought, this is a kind of, Impunity that yes. yeah. is very because there are there are like bad things that happen everywhere, but it you know, generally speaking, you know that you still have like civil society when there's a sense of shame. It's like you do bad things, but you do it like in a very circumscribed fashion. Like I, I remember when there was the biker war happening here in the mid nineteen nineties where the Uh, The Hells Angels, they had a kind of franchise system, and so they ran the drug trade directly in some places, but in other places they would have like a kind of McDonald's franchise model where they would like allow a, a local gang like the Rock Machine, for instance, in Quebec to run the drug trade, but then you would have to buy all your product from them, so they would like be their supplier. But at a certain point that they decided like a lot of multinationals did at that point in the 1990s legal and illegal they decided that that was not working very well it wasn't working very efficiently and smoothly and um, a lot of the local gangs were were being very sloppy and messy and were making problems with the law with like police and with politicians and making headaches for them so they decided to assert direct control over the drug trade all over Canada and Scandinavia and the parts of the United States where they were, uh, where they were, and and they were <laughs> like a typical like corporate buyout. They went to places and said, you know, in Manitoba they did this in Saskatchewan, in Alberta. They said, "All right, I know that you've been. This has been the system for a while. Uh, we want to move to this system. However, we're going to offer you a very generous buyout package." Wow. Uh, you join our organization, we will, like, grandfather in your seniority. So if you have 12 years of seniority in your gang, we'll grandfather in 12 years of seniority into our gang. Uh, You'll be a full-patch member of the Hells Angels with this much seniority. Uh, However, you're going to have to play by our rules now, and we have some in-house rules that you may or may not. Like, for instance, Hells Angels said, uh, if you are a member of the Hells Angels, you're not allowed to do any coke, any heroin, you're only allowed to do booze and weed, and you're only allowed to do that when you're not working. Like, that's like a rule. And you can be, like, uh, fined severely and then kicked out if you're caught, you know, breaking those rules. Right. So anyway, so all over, they all went for it. But then the the rock machine said, uh, no, we don't want to do that. And and then there was the biker war and they just, there was like, you know, all suddenly like Montreal turned into this like gangland. They were shooting people all over. People were getting shot on Wellington Street in Verdun like practically every second or third day. And they were shooting people back and forth. But they were always just shooting each other like and killing each other. But then there was a, a car bomb in like a van that went off. I think it was, like, on the east end, like in Buen Notre-Dame or something like that. And it went off, and the explosion happened to kill this, like, five-year-old boy who was, like, you know, a civilian, an innocent. And immediately there was an emergency session of the Quebec government. They met at, like, midnight, middle of the night, and they instituted what they called Operation Wolverine, where anybody who was associated with a biker gang lost all of their civil rights for, like, it was, like, two or two months. And they just went on a pattern of, like, systematic harassment. They went to anybody who was in a biker gang in the middle of the winter, took all their furniture and all their stuff, (laughs) threw it out in the snow, ransacked their house, broke their windows. Just harassment. Like, just constantly, like, they had no civil rights. And it was, I remember going up and down the avenues in Verdun and seeing, like, People's stuff all over the street who were involved. And, and the message was like, you're not allowed impunity. Like, we right. really don't like this, but you can't be. And so when, when Asuka was saying about all the stuff that's happening openly in Brazil, killing people in broad daylight, and like.
2: I mean, there's constantly stories about kids in Brazil getting shot because they were like aiming for some other target and then they accidentally shot this kid. And it's like. Ah, it's just disgustingly heartbreaking.
1: Yeah. I mean, do you do you think – do you see any kind of like end in sight or do you think it's just going to keep – you, do you feel any pushback when you were – last time you were there four years ago, did you sense any kind of like popular pushback against all of this?
2: I don't think I really saw much of it four years ago. I think it's been a bit more recent. Um, but I mean also – I typically spend most of my time more in the north, and there's really a north-south divide. Oh, the okay. north is more um, predominantly black. the The lighter-skinned populations are primarily in the south, and that tends to be also the political divide of like the current the current administration. Um, most of the supporters are in the south. So there's a different agenda. There's different attitudes, opinions. It's also why I prefer to be in the north.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and in the north, is it more wild, or is it just different cities, or what is what is the difference?
2: Well, it's. I mean, the the big kind of economic centers are Rio and Sao Paulo, which are in the south. Um, they just have a different history of immigration, and so the the color lines have kind of also stayed a bit more separate as well.
1: Huh. Yeah, I mean, well they they had the slavery there was much more was much more extreme than it was. I'm trying to think of the book that you read that's from the 1970s. Um, but the I know that the cuz I've I've read a lot of that literature and I know that very often they say the difference was that if you had Slavery in the in the American South, what became the United States in the American colonies, slavery in the American colonies tended to be things that are very very labor intensive, um, but at the same time have small profit margins. So, and it's of course it was much back then; it was much farther to to get to the American colonies. Like you could get to the Caribbean fairly. Quickly from Africa, let's say, right, and you could get to Brazil fairly quickly, whereas you had to, you couldn't go straight across. You had to go like, like you know, down and up. So to get to, let's say, you know, South Carolina or Virginia was a much much longer trip. So uh, slaves tended to be much more expensive, and the profit margins were smaller in the American colonies.
2: And there was also then more. Um, slaves that were just born into slavery in the U.S., from yes. what this book says. Yeah. As opposed to fresh batches, so to speak, of new slaves coming into Brazil, which kind of resulted in the Afro-Brazilian culture being stronger in Brazil yeah. than they are even currently in the United States. Because- yeah, no,
1: absolutely. Like, slaves were were very expensive, were, uh, like, really, really expensive. And the property and the the sort of profit margins were small, which meant that there was a vested interest for slaveholders in the American colonies in actually feeding your slaves well and taking care of them and and stuff like that and like having, you know, natural increase and things like that. There was a they actually, you know, there were a number of studies done in the eighteenth century and the early nineteenth century that found that slaves in the American South were I mean, I think slavery is a absolutely disgusting system. But uh, but in terms of just like their nutrition, they had far better nutrition than the British working class, for instance, mm. or the German or the French working class. And that's not because these slaveholders were these enlightened people; they're fucking monsters. It's because there was a, an economic interest in actually keeping them sl- keeping healthier. them keeping them healthier because it was such a huge capital investment like having a very expensive tool or something like Brilliant. that. You're going to keep nice care of it and like clean it and you know, make sure it doesn't get rusty and take care of it. Uh, whereas in places like like Haiti and Jamaica and Brazil, you were, you had a constant flow of slaves coming over mm-hmm. like new new slaves and the The property – the the profit margins for sugar are unbelievable. Like you could – like back then you could be like the sort of idiot idiot third, fourth son of some wealthy British family and you've got a little bit of money and you could go to Jamaica or you could, you know, the second or third son from some like – Spanish minor nobility family that lost their money, most of their money, they got a castle. You could take like a little bit of money and go to, go to kind of the South America or to the Caribbean and become fabulously wealthy. Like right. these huge fortunes were being made. Whereas that was just not, you could make like, you could make good money in kind of slave agriculture in the American colonies, but it wasn't the same. It was more of like kind of like building up mm. a fortune over 10, 20, 30 years, at, whereas like people, it was like Silicon Valley or something. Like you could go to Jamaica and people would make these massive fortunes like practically right. in two or three years. So because of that, they they could afford to work slaves to death Literally, right? Like work them to death, and they did, right? Because they could just hire new ones, right? So, I mean, that's yeah. And it does it does affect the way in which um, slavery was different in the different parts of the Americas, and and also slavery tended to be way more racialized in the uh, American colonies than it was in the Caribbean and in South America. It was like way more. I mean, you did have, if you go far back enough, you can find, um, like, there's a Michael Johnson wrote a classic book on this called Black Masters, and it's about how there were, like, in the American colonies, there were actually, back in the day, African Americans who, like, earned their freedom and then became slaveholders and had. Right, right, yeah. Like, there were Black Masters, and there were kind of, there was a little bit of that, but that that kind of door closed Pretty early on, and then it became slavery became quite like racial, like a racialized condition. Whereas it, it didn't, it was way more complicated apparently in uh, in sort of Latin America and in the Caribbean where you had like color gradients and it was way more mm. kind of weird. I mean, I mean, do you <clears throat> do you sort of cover any of that in your sugar stuff? <sighs>
2: That's a good question. Um, I mean, I would say some of the more recent work is sort of looking more at the legacy, at like what, you know, first I was more interested in the history and kind of exploring that history of sugar because I felt like, well, I've been using this material for a while already and I haven't really investigated it itself And there's a lot of artists that work with sugar, and I I now find it weird that, like, you would want to work with sugar and not somehow address it. Like, to me, sugar... It's kind
1: of obvious, yeah.
2: Sugar just, in all its forms and manifestations, represents corruption and power. Like, (laughs) I don't just see a cupcake. I see, like, (laughs) corruption. It's true. It's true. I mean, from, like, the past to, like, big sugar... You know, sugar companies today are still just these corrupt, evil monsters. And, like, it's just so endlessly interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, even in the US, like, how some countries' entire landscapes were shaped by irrigation policies that were put in place to grow sugar in places where you shouldn't grow sugar. <laughs> and
1: where in the United States were they growing lots of sugar?
2: Um, like some parts of the South. I forget exactly where. I, I read this.
1: I, th- I thought sugarcane cane really kind of needs it to be way hotter and more kind of tropical. But really, I mean, like Florida, Louisiana, where else could you really?
2: Yeah, but I mean, there's still some areas that didn't really have enough water, but they changed irrigation policies to make it able to grow. And so, yeah. So I, I just think that there's, there's just so much about it that continues to interest me. The more I learn about it, and you know, again, looking at things in Brazil and like, I feel like it's it seems sort of obvious to me that the corruption that's there today in Brazil and like the friend of mine that was was, was killed is like this legacy of the imbalance that's been there for hundreds of years.
1: Yeah, it's so odd that all of this is based on this weird genetic mutation within Homo sapiens sapien, where at some point in our evolutionary past, nobody knows why this happened. At some point in our evolutionary past, we lost the ability to produce vitamin C within our bodies. We're like one of a small handful of animals. I think it's like six animals or ten animals you can google it but it's like it's us like some madagascar like fruit bat and like there's, (laughs) there's only a few most animals make vitamin c within their bodies like in their liver or something like that they like you know you make most of the things that you need you eat your food it's broken down into its constituent elements and then it goes to places like your liver which are like little little chemical factories and they kind of construct all the building blocks that you need, the amino acids and stuff like that. But there's like a couple of, there's some things that we don't make within our bodies. And so we need to take them in on a regular basis from our environment. And uh, vitamin C is one of these things. And so because we lost the ability to, to produce vitamin C, we need to take it in our environment. Now, for most of our evolutionary past, the most likely way that we would take that in was by sweet fruits. And so we developed a sweet tooth because the people who... Told
2: us when it was ripe.
1: <laughs> well, the people who had more of a sweet tooth tended to like be attracted to eating more fruits, which meant they were more likely to get enough vitamin C, which meant they were more likely to not get scurvy and to survive and, and pass, on, <laughs> pass on this genetic predisposition towards having a sweet tooth. So because of this weird fluke where we don't make vitamin C, which leads to our sweet tooth, which leads to you know the discovery because for most of human history it was like honey basically. That was the sweetest thing you could right. have. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then they figured out that there's this thing called sugarcane and you can process it and you can make this. And thing. for
2: a long time, I mean it's it's a really challenging substance to get out of the cane it's a grueling brutal process and that's why you could never really consume it on mass until they discovered oh well if we just get free labor and make work them to death then we can actually get this sh- sweet substance out of this tough stocky awful you know plant
1: <laughs> and then it becomes like the normal thing for people to have tea, in places I mean, like for so the long, UK, it was still a luxury. Teas from right? South South Asia, and then the sugars from like the Caribbean and Latin America.
2: But I mean, look at us today. Where does your coffee come from, right? Where does your chocolate come from? Where, where do your clothes come from? I mean, we are just living in complete gluttony of things that come from all over the world, and we don't know where they come from or who makes them or how they grow. Sometimes we think we do, but do we really? <laughs> and do we want to know?
1: Not always. Uh, not always, and I think we we don't necessarily want to know. I mean, if you look at all the scandals that Lululemon has gotten into, and those other companies, that, the super kind of like, they write down like, this is made out of organic like octopuses that never like that looked at the ocean lovingly in a with pink tentacles like they they make up free range they octopuses. yeah they go like all in and New York Times has done a number of number of exposes um on uh, Lululemon and a few other companies and shown that they basically sent it to the lab and said is this actually organic or is this actually contain this right. and they found it was like. Total bullshit. And yet, one expose after another, and people still buy this stuff like crazy. And I think, like, what Naomi Klein said was absolutely right on. She said, uh, What this proves is that people don't really care where it comes from. They just want the story. They want, like, they want the story so that they can feel like I'm consuming with feel a clean better. conscience. Yeah. Right. It's like, uh, you know, I was a uh, Joe Rogan uh, podcast the other day. He had somebody on, was like Nikki Glaser or something like that. And she was talking about how she had gotten, like, two rescue dogs, like, over the years. And they gave her this big, long story about, like, yeah, well, this dog was found in, the ba- in a back alley behind a pizzeria and was living off of, like, garbage, like, pizza kind of in the bags and stuff like that. And so she went back. And to talk to somebody who worked there, like in a, met them in a different context, like at a party, and said, Yeah, you know, that's like really kind of a crazy story. And she goes, No, that's not true. We just make up stories.
2: Oh my god, that's they're like we just cemented. we we just
1: make up stories because people want not a story. Yeah, it's like working in an antique shop. You make up a story about like Where the artifact. Ambulance? Yeah, and you who make the former owners. Yeah, used you, to be. you make up like a story. And so for consumer goods very often Totally. Like I mean, think about, like, Canada was for years, and AdBusters was saying this in the 1990s, we were, like, recycling, right? And we very quickly reached the limit where, like, our domestic industries didn't have anything to do with the recycled goods. So we started, like, shipping it to China. And companies would, uh, and we would, like, pay for all the shipping to send, like, the plastic or whatever there. And we would even pay them like an extra. So we weren't making money off the recycling right. anymore. Just it was make like, it disappear. Just make it go away. Right. Well, in China, what they were doing, those companies were just, they didn't have any use for it. They were just burning it. Right. And causing the air quality to become horrible in China. And so then finally, Xi came in and said, our air quality is shit. And we're not taking any more Canadian recycling. Yeah. And then all these people realize that I've been meticulously recycling.
2: I've been cleaning those for
1: years, and it's just been ending up in landfills and burned, right? And uh, I that you know when I when I read about that, that was just because I remember thinking I remember canceling my subscription after that particular episode of Adbusters because I thought it was the most cynical shit I had ever... The the front cover, I remember it was like a, an article by Kaylee Lazen, the editor, and the front cover was like Canada recycled it was like the, the amount that was recycled the previous year, and it said Canada recycled 92,000 pounds of environmentalist guilt last year. <laughs> and like, and he, he was awesome. just saying this is a giant scam, it's not real. I mean, did you know about this?
2: That This is what we've been doing with our recycling. Yeah. Well, recently, but not for...
1: Okay, um, so I'm not like totally... Because I only figured it out recently. But I mean, I I feel like
2: for a long time, I've realized that recycling is not the answer. Do you remember as a kid, it was the three R's? Reduce. Yep. Reuse. Recycle. Recycle was the last. Now everyone is just like, recycle, recycle. It's like, no, just (laughs) reduce. Reduce everything.
1: Okay, so how do you then
2: reuse? Yeah, <laughs> and then reduce some more. Go back to the first one, and then if you absolutely have stuff, then you know, recycle.
1: So yeah. I mean, so what are you working on? This, I always, I always finish off asking people about this. So what are you working on now? Like, what are your what are the commissions that you're
2: that have been I'm, accepted
1: that are going to be on the pipeline? I'm
2: working on two uh, public art commissions right now. One is um, a private. One. And then the other one is for a metro station in Montreal. Which one? Angrinol.
1: Oh wow. Oh. Oh. That is that I, is I think one of the that, publicly. that is one of the most the coolest because it's one of the only ones like Mars, and uh it's one of the only ones that gets lots of natural light. Yeah, it's and it's, the
2: architecture is beautiful in, in the building because of all the domed glass.
1: Yeah. Wow, so you can, that's going to be really interesting because most metro gigs, you kind of have to work with with uh, something that's just lit up by fluorescent lighting. And is, I mean, this is
2: going to have some artificial yes. lights as well to highlight it.
1: But you, there will be kind of, it'll look different at different times of day, and Hopefully. it'll have that kind of. Yeah. So do you know what you're going to do with it? Is it going to be on the ground, on the walls? No, it's on it's the two ceiling?
2: wall murals, one on each side of the platform. Okay. And it's going to be in uh, a combination of glass and ceramic. So some is um, like digital printing on glass. Some mosaic, kind of a mixed, mixed material.
1: So anything that's going to be fantastic. Wow. It's and the, the
2: the theme or content is based a lot on the history of the Park Angreniel, which is just outside the metro, because there used to be a zoo there
1: yeah i i remember
2: yeah yeah <laughs> when i was a kid I didn't yeah grow up here so you probably remember yeah
1: that. no i remember it was uh, so
2: i mean mostly the artwork kind of deals with that history of of zoos and containment and animals and boxes and things that we kind of don't do anymore
1: yeah, and that a lot of images such a wild
2: wild kind of yeah. i have
1: so many Crazy memories of that park growing up. Like it was. That's uh, great.
2: Well, I'm curious to know what you'll think of the artwork when it's done.
1: Well, the most. uh, I mean, the most recent one was. What was it? That that guy, the crazy guy, who he killed this like Chinese exchange student who was going to Concordia, and he like he was eating him. Uh, What was it?
2: Oh, jeez, I forgot. It was. uh, I'm
1: totally blanking on his name because it was such a gross. Story. He I he, he immediately that. kind. Of, he made his his kind of notoriety online by like like killing kittens on like line, and then uh, and then he kind of graduated and he he basically seduced this this young Chinese exchange student gay student and he brought him back and like killed him and then was like he did all this it was. I'm totally blacking on his name, anyway. But he uh, is a very creepy, horrible person. But he left. He mailed a bunch of his body parts to Stephen Harper. Right. Yeah, I remember that. And he left. He left the guy's head in Angerville Park. Okay. Oh. In sh- the pond, right by the the metro station.
2: I'm glad I didn't know that. And
1: there's this like jogger who was like, like jogging in the morning, and thought the the head was like a Halloween mask that somebody oh, had left. Oh, God. Yeah. Ugh. Thought it was like a Halloween mask somebody had left. And then, like, you know, after, like a while after, like kind of 10, 15 minutes afterwards, was thinking about it and going,
2: Wait a minute.
1: Wait a minute. I need to go back. I need to go back and take a second look. And went back and was like, oh, fuck, and, like, called the police and they came. Like, the one where the herons hang out, you know, the pond. Okay, ponders. no,
2: stop, stop, no. <laughs> the, like We're not, no, it's, we're done.
1: Yeah, it's, like, such a, but there's so many, like, all these crazy stories that it's I remember. A, yeah, from,
2: it's a weird area, too. From,
1: uh, yes, yeah, it's very, it's a very odd
2: Anyway, my artwork is going to be really beautiful. Yes,
1: (laughs) No (laughs) severed heads in it at all whatsoever. Just beautiful, cool stuff. Um, Yeah. And the zoo. Yeah. Yeah. And so
2: I did a lot of research at the Montreal Archives about this history. And I was just like fascinated by all these slides uh, and like negatives that I was finding in boxes that had never been scanned or printed. So it was like all these crazy cool photos that were just like, they're just in boxes in the archives. So I'm sort of like bringing back these, these p- past images to life.
1: Yeah, this I think when, when Tristan and Indy were really young, the zoo had been pared down to almost nothing and that they, they had basically a petting zoo. Yeah, there was a
2: petting zoo. For yeah,
1: which, and we took them to the petting zoo and then gradually that was phased out as well. And there was, and then there was nothing, right? Yeah. But it is, yeah, it's a very, it's very interesting. And it used to be, like on the west side of Hanger Park, it was all fields. It was completely yeah. wild. It was before. I remember, like when I was a kid, that was all wild. There was no, um, like between that and the Douglas Hospital, it was just fields. Right. Yeah. And then gradually it got, it's gotten all built up, and so now it has this, like much more. Like a feeling that it's like this green space that's contained in the
2: middle of city. But yeah, but it wasn't like that, that it before. Started.
1: It used to be like this very, very in like uber, uber industrial, like like at Saint Ball and stuff like that in Villemard, which was very industrial. And then you had this park that was quite like manicured, and it was a place for working class people to go and like chill out and. Beyond that, it was just, like, wild. Right, Like, all, like, like forests and and fields and stuff like that. And then gradually that got all suburbanized. And then all the industrial areas just, like, everything left and industry kind of left. And so they were, it was, like, ghost town for a little while in in Cote St. Paul and Villemard And it was, like, empty. Mm. Like, completely, like, almost like Rust Belt aesthetic, right? And then people started moving you know back into those neighborhood and became kind of hipsterish and families started moving in and it's it's a very it's a very kind of interesting strange strange place but yeah. anyway thank you so much for for coming on the podcast and I I will uh, provide links to to all of your stuff uh, when we put this out and so people can see because, you know, you can only use words to describe things so yes. far if you're doing visual stuff. but
2: I'm going to also be in a group show opening in a few weeks. I don't know when this is going to be released. But uh, over the course of uh, November, I did a symposium in Bay St. Paul two summers ago in 2018, and there was 14 artists. So we've decided to kind of reunite and have a group show together in Montreal
1: and when's that going to be?
2: Uh, the Vernissage is the 1st of November on Friday. Okay. And I'm presenting a sugar piece. Nice. Okay. That.
1: Well, we will, uh, we will make sure to to get this out uh, in time to, you know, get lots of people to come to that. Yeah, so
2: sure.
1: <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, okay. Johnny.